0: God continues to lead us from his word. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the woman who had testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. He stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. Well, brothers and sisters, it is that word that is going to be preached to us now. May we also be like those people that were with Jesus and with the woman at Samaria. May we also believe. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 22 this morning, trust the familiar psalm to many, if not all of you. I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. This is the Word of Almighty God, so I ask that you stand out of respect and reverence for the reading of His holy word. Psalm 22 for the choir director, upon Ijaeth, Hashahar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O oh you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted, and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip, they wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil doers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O oh, you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answered me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Oh God, what a text, what a passage that is before us today. We pray and ask that you would take the message that is on these pages by your spirit and that you would apply them to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' holy name. amen Amen. please be seated the passage before us truly is an amazing passage for many reasons none the least of which is that it gives us a first person account of the cross when we read the gospels they are third person accounts of the cross Yes, we do get some some insight into what Jesus was thinking from the seven sayings that he, he spoke when he was upon the cross. But by and large, the Gospels provide for us eyewitness accounts. They are third parties. They are people telling us what happened to Jesus. They are on the outside looking in, as it were. But in the passage before us today, we have Jesus telling us about the cross. It is, as it were, a window into his very soul. We get a peek into the thought life of Christ as he is on the cross. I imagine that if a thousand years from now in glory, if like the Apostle John, we were to lean upon the Savior's breast and we were to turn to him and we were to say, Master, tell us about the cross. What were you thinking? What was going through your mind? That as he no doubt did to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he would once again lead our attention to this psalm. And he would tell us, This is what I was thinking upon the cross. This is what was going through my mind. This was my prayer as I was suffering upon the tree. It is marvelous. And it is a psalm about Jesus. It is a psalm about his his sufferings on the cross. It it is applied to Jesus or attributed to Jesus in the New Testament. The New Testament quotes this psalm some ten times. Verse 1 is, is quoted by Matthew and Mark. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see uh, all three of the synoptic gospels allude to verse 8, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him. Perhaps the, our Lord has verse 15 on his mind when he gives the fifth saying of the cross, when he says, I thirst. All of the gospel writers, all four of them, quote verse 18, and speaking of the dividing of the garments, and the writer of Hebrews attributes verse 22 and says that it is Jesus who is speaking when he says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. So there's no doubt this is a psalm about Jesus. This psalm is about Christ on the cross. Jesus himself, when on the road to Emmaus, uh, told the disciples that he said, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled that there are specific things written about Jesus in the Psalms, that there are specific Psalms that are Messianic Psalms, as we call them. They are about Christ. Some people say that this is uh, uh, merely about David, or some people say that it is it is David's suffering, and Christ then appropriated it to his own situation. Perhaps that is, is true. There is some truth to that. But I think it's it's best to understand that David was looking forward to the Christ. In the spirit of of Acts 2, when uh, the the Apostle Peter was expounding upon a different psalm, Psalm 16, he said that because David was a prophet, he looked ahead and spoke of the Christ. That there are certain things in the psalm that David just didn't experience. David was not crucified. We don't have uh, an account of David being stripped of his clothing. And his kingdom certainly did not extend to all the nations, to, to the ends of the earth. That this is about Jesus. It, it, is a, it is a psalm that is a lament. I think it's helpful for us to understand this, this type of psalm, the lament psalms. One of the sources that I read said upwards of 40% of the Psalter is composed of lament psalms. So it's, it's, it's important for us to understand this very uh, a frequent type of psalm in, in the book of psalms. The lament psalms typically have five components. The first is some sort of address to God. The second is uh, some sort of complaint The third is a request. The fourth is a a, a statement of confidence that God will hear the the request. And the fifth is a vow. And we see all of those in here. First, we see the address. Look at in verse one, my God, my God, Jesus addresses God. We see a complaint. Why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. You're not listening to my prayer. You're not hearing me. Jesus is, is complaining about unheard prayer. We see the request in verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And then again in 19, But you, O Lord, be not far off. So he he has made his request. We see a a confident assertion that his prayer would be heard in verse 21. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. This is the great turning point in the psalm where Jesus says, You have have answered me. And then we see the vow uh, in, in 22 and following where he says that I will come and I will declare your name to my brethren. So it's a psalm about Jesus, it's a lament, and if you were following the components of a lament, you would see that at the heart of lament is, is 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 it's a prayer. This is a prayer. This psalm is the prayer it's the prayer of Jesus as he hung upon the cross, as he suffered for his people. And so we we ask, Well, what was Jesus praying for? What was it that was on Jesus' heart as he was struggling uh, upon the tree? What was it that he was seeking? Well, we see some of it in in the first verse where he speaks of God forsaking him, and then he speaks of deliverance. And then again, he, in verse 11, asks that God would draw near, again in 19, that God would draw near, and then in verse 20, that God would deliver him. So he is is praying that God would draw near to him, that he would deliver him, that he would save him, that he would indeed deliver his very life, his very soul, from the sword and from the power of, of the dog. He is asking that God would draw near and deliver him. And we have to ask, did God answer this prayer? Did God answer this prayer? When Jesus tells us he did, we see it in verse 21, and we also see it in verse 24, at the end of 24, but when he cried to him for help, he heard. And this ought to raise some questions in your mind, right? It raised some questions in my mind. First is, is why would Jesus pray to be delivered. We we read in, in John 27, he, or excuse me, 1227, he says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, Look, what am I going to do? Pray that God delivers me from the cross? It's for this very purpose that I came. That Jesus came from heaven and became man and lived a perfect life. That he came to the cross to die for his people. To bear their sins and to rise again from the dead. And he says, my soul is troubled and what am I going to do? Ask God to deliver me from it? It's my very purpose that I face the cross. But now here on the cross he's asking for deliverance. How are we to understand this? How are we, how are we to, to grapple with these passages? Or even a further question, in what sense was he delivered? He says that that he's praying for deliverance and that God has delivered him. How are we to understand that? Because we know that Jesus died. That's at the heart of of our creed. It's at the heart of our confession, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead, and buried, that he died. Jesus died, that God did not, in some sense, deliver him from death. So in what sense did God answer his prayer of deliverance? Well, I hope to address those questions as, as we work our, our way through the passage. The passage is neatly divided in, into three parts, uh, revolving around the prayer of Christ. It starts with him wrestling with, with unanswered prayer. You should have an outline in your bulletin. Feel free to follow along. The first part is, is that Jesus' prayer was not heard, that Christ's prayer was not heard. We see, we're going to see that in the first part, and he's wrestling with unanswered prayer. And then in the second part is Christ repeats his prayer. So the first part of verses 1 through 10, the second part is verses 11 to 21, and then that the third part is that Christ's prayer was heard, and that's verses 22 to 31. So a three-part outline, Christ's prayer was not heard. Christ's prayer was repeated, and then Christ's prayer was heard. So let's let's dig into this marvelous passage together, starting with the first point, that Christ's prayer was not heard. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, God, I'm praying to you and you're not hearing. You're not listening. You're not delivering me. Far from the words of my groaning, I'm groaning, groaning, I'm crying out to you. And you have yet to deliver me. Indeed, you have forsaken me. It's interesting when we we look at this, this prayer of Jesus in the Gospels. It tells us the time of day that he prayed this prayer. It says that he prayed it at the ninth hour. And as we, we try to put together the, uh, the, the account of the crucifixion, it tells us in the book of Mark that it was the third hour when they crucified him. That's according to Roman time. So the third hour is our 9 a.m. So at, at, at 9 o'clock in the morning, Jesus is, 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 is hung on the cross. And then it says, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell upon the whole land until the ninth hour. So the third hour is 9 a.m., the sixth hour is noon, and there was darkness from noon until the ninth hour. So three hours of darkness. Jesus on the cross for six hours. It's from noon until 3 p.m. that there's darkness upon the land. And it's at 3 p.m., it tells us, in, in, in Mark. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here we are thrown into into the, into the deepest part of Christ's suffering. This is the height of his suffering. It's as if we have landed on the beachhead of, of his sufferings. That is, it has been three hours of darkness. He has been on the cross for six hours now. The wrath of Almighty God is being poured out upon him because he is bearing the sins of his people. He is the substitute for his people's sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That God had had taken the sins of his people, laid them upon his Son, who is the Lamb of God, who is to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus, upon the cross, is bearing the sins of his people, and as a result, he is suffering the wrath of Almighty God. And that three hours of darkness, as we have learned from this pulpit, is a sign of the judgment of God. It's a sign of the displeasure of God, that God has turned his face away from his son, that he has, indeed, as Jesus said, forsaken him, that Jesus was feeling the displeasure of his father as he bore the sins of his people. This is the one to whom it was said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one who could say, Father, I know that you always hear me. And now God has turned his face from him. Now God is no longer hearing his prayer. And Jesus is crying out in agony at the ninth hour, in an hour of darkness. And we see his response to unanswered prayer. It's it's quite remarkable. Look at the first thing he does in verse 3, is that he focuses upon the character of God.
1: He says, yet
0: you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. So you, you get the picture here, right? Jesus is upon the cross. God is not answering his prayer. God is yet to deliver him. He is struggling in prayer, but the first thing he does is he focuses upon the holiness of God. I found that interesting. I know for myself, when I'm going through trials, I typically focus upon the wisdom of God, perhaps the faithfulness of God, uh, the goodness of God. I say to myself, God, I know, or I, I pray to God, I say, God, I know that you are wise. I know you have a purpose for this trial in my life. And I trust you in it. Or I can say, God, I know that you are good. That you are going to bring good out of this evil in my life. Or God, I know that you are faithful. That you are working all things together for good. But here Jesus focuses upon the holiness of God. Isn't that interesting? Why? Why would he focus on the holiness of God? One commentator that I read said it was to remind himself of the necessity of the cross. That here he is in the midst of his suffering in the midst of being forsaken by his father, in the midst of of bearing the wrath and curse due to us for our sin, and he looks at God and he reminds himself of God's holiness, that God is of pure eyes and to behold evil, that it was fitting for God to turn his gaze away from the sun. It was fitting for God to, to forsake him as he bore the sins of his people. And so he focuses upon the character of God as the first thing he does in response to unanswered prayer. But look at the next thing he does. He focuses on God's deeds in time past. He looks at God's deeds to the fathers in verse five, or excuse me, verse four. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Or as another translation has it, they were not put to shame. You see what he's doing? He's, he's, he's reminding himself that, God, you have never forsaken those who put their trust in you. When, when people put their trust in you, they are putting their trust in a reliable place, that those who put their trust in you will not be put to shame, that they will be delivered. And that do you see what he's saying? He's saying, God, I trust you. I trust that I will be delivered. I love what David Strain says about this. He says, looking at past grace as a promise of uh, future grace, is a great tool in present trials. Let me repeat that. Looking at past grace as a promise of future grace is a great tool in present trials. So Jesus is looking to the past. He's looking at God's track record in history, his deeds to the fathers, and he's saying, God, I know that you you deliver those who trust you. I am trusting you that you will deliver me too. But he is not yet seeing that deliverance in verse 6. He says, but I am a worm. You have delivered them, but you have not yet delivered me. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. That those who were walking by were sneering at him, wagging their heads at him, mocking him. We see the, 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 the sufferings of Christ and the shame of the cross as he is despised by men. Reminds me of John chapter 1, right? He came to his own and his own did not receive him. His own nation, his own people were the ones who cried out, crucify him. His own leaders, his own kinsmen, mocking him as he's upon the cross. But look at the third thing he does. First, he looks to the character of God. Then he looks to the deeds of God to the fathers, the deeds of, of God to others. But then he looks to the deeds of God, uh, the deeds of God to himself in verse 9. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. He says in verse 10, Upon you I was cast from birth, and you have been my God from my mother's womb. Notice too his address to God. He still calls God his God, even though he feels that God has forsaken him. God is still his God. And he is saying, God, you have been my God from my mother's womb. You are the one who had brought me from my mother's womb, and I have trusted you from my mother's breast. I love this. Listen, children in this congregation, if you're zoning out, now's the time to listen. There will be a time in your life where you're going to hear hear some amazing testimony about God's deliverance from somebody out of a life of drugs or out of a life of of gangs or out of a life of prison. And you're going to somehow feel that you're some second-rate Christian because you've always known the Lord. You were raised in the church and there's never been a day that you didn't know Him. Or you're going to have somebody maybe say, tell me the day or the hour that you believed. And you'll say, I can't. I've always believed. I've always known. Don't ever think that that testimony is a second-rate testimony because you know why? It was a testimony of Jesus. It was Jesus' testimony that he never knew a day that he didn't trust upon the Father. He said that he, he trusted from his mother's womb. He trusted from his mother's breast that God was his God from all his life. It's the testimony that we want for all of our children. We never want our children to have some fall into the world and and have to to be rescued out. No doubt all of us are rescued. We know that. We're born in sin and misery and God needs to regenerate us. But what a testimony it is when we can say there has never been a day that I have not known the Lord. And that was the testimony of Jesus. But let's, let's keep it in its context. Remember, he's on the cross. He's struggling that God is not answering his prayer and he's focusing on God's character. He's focusing on God's deeds to the to the fathers, and he's focusing on on God's deeds to himself. He's saying, "You have been faithful to me all these years, and I am not going to give up my hope in your deliverance." There's application here for us, isn't there, in our own sufferings? We first look at what what burdened Christ in his trial. It was the presence of God, was it not? That it was that God had forsaken him. And, and what was his request? That God would, would draw near to him? That God would not be far off? What about you when you're going through the trials of life? What is it that burdens you? Is it the presence of God or the absence, the perceived absence of it? Is it the nearness of God that you long for? It makes me think of Moses. Remember Moses when, when God had said, I, I, I'm not going to go up with you out of the wilderness. I'll, I'll send you into the promised land, but I am not going to go with you. And what did Moses say? If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, God, I would rather be in the wilderness, in the trial with you, with your presence, than to be in all the luxury and all the, the enjoyment of the promised land without you. Can you say that today? Is that your longing in your trials that God would just draw near to you? And if, you, if it means your trial with God instead of, instead of your peace without him, will you choose the trial with God? Well, what about when you do come into a time of trial? How do you respond? Do you respond by reminding yourself of the character of God, of his deeds in times past, of his faithfulness to you? Follow the Savior's example. But Jesus does not give up in prayer. He's persistent in it. He applies his words to us when he tells us that we always ought to pray and to not lose heart. And that leads us to the second portion of this great psalm, and that is the portion where Christ's prayer is repeated. Look at verse 11. He says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. God, you are far off, but there is plenty of trouble nearby, and please draw near to me. You see, he's asking God to be near to him. And then he begins to enumerate all of these, these troubles, that, 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 that there is none to help him. That the sword has been drawn on the shepherd. The sheep have been scattered. His friends have have left him. there There is none in government who can help him. Indeed, they are the very ones who are crucifying him. And the father has forsaken him. He is all alone bearing the sins of the world. And he begins to enumerate to the father all of his sufferings. He is applying the principle that we are to cast our cares upon him. Because he cares for us. And he begins to enumerate what is going on. In verse 12 he says many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. The bulls of Bashan were the fat ones, the sleek ones. The the area east of the Jordan was good pasture land. If you recall, that's why the the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribes of Manasseh wanted to keep that land is because they had much livestock. That the the land of of Og uh, and and um Sihon were, were lands that were good for pasture and that the, the cattle that it produced, they were fat, they were strong, they were mighty. Jesus is saying, the mighty have encircled me. The strong ones have encircled me. Remember that Jesus was rejected by the priests, by the chief priests, by the Sanhedrin. Can you imagine that? I mean, to, to try to put that in perspective, uh, th- remember, this is Passover. Uh, this, is, this is a great feast. And uh, imagine Perhaps in our context, being in Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July, the the celebration of of the birth of our nation, of our independence, and having the Supreme Court and the president and all the people crying out for your death, being forsaken by everyone. That's essentially what has happened to Jesus here. It's Passover. They're celebrating the the, the great event of of God taking them out of Egypt, delivering them and, and forming the nation. And all of the the rulers of the nation, all of the people of the nation have have condemned him, have cried out for his blood, have cried out for his crucifixion. And they have surrounded him. They've encircled him. He begins to uh, recount all that is happening with his body. He says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. He says, my heart is like wax. It is melted within me. He's describing the fear that is upon him that he is he is terrified as we look in scriptures at this phrase of of the heart being melted it describes fear that perhaps as a man he was fearing the the sufferings of the cross the pain that was no doubt his because of the crucifixion perhaps the fear of death but no doubt fearing the wrath of almighty god it was fitting for him to tremble under the sentence of of the wrath of god as the sin bearer of his people he says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. That his, 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 his mouth was dried out. He was thirsty. He says, dogs have encircled me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. Literally, a, 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 an assembly of evildoers, a church of evildoers has encircled him. I have, I have seen a band of wild dogs before. I've seen a band of wild dogs encircle uh, a stray animal and tear it apart it's a vicious thing to to encounter it's a vicious thing to witness and jesus describes his enemies as a as a as a pack of wild dogs encircling him and surrounding him and he says they pierce my hands and my feet this is a there is a variant here but if this is the proper reading it is no doubt a reference to his hands and his feet being nailed to the cross Remember what Thomas said, unless I can put my finger into his hand, unless I can put my hand into his side, I will never believe that Jesus was nailed to the cross, that they, they, they pierced his hands and his feet. He says, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. He's describing the, the public shame of the cross, that everybody is looking at him. Remember, this is Passover. Think how many tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people had flocked to Jerusalem at this time. And that the inscription was written not only in Aramaic, but it was also written in Latin and Greek. So all could read the charge against him. Think how many tens of thousands of people would have walked by and looked at him and sneered at him and mocked him. And that was the point. That's the purpose of crucifixion. That was the purpose of public execution. is to put the criminal on display. And he says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You know, typically when we see uh, the crucifixion depicted in art, whether it be a, a crucifix or some sort of painting, how is Jesus depicted? He has a loincloth on, doesn't he? He has some sort of underwear, if you will. But you know, that's, that's, they didn't have underwear in, in, in the way we have it back then. The ancient Israelite would have had two garments. They would have had the inner garment and the outer garment. And it says that they cast lots for one and they divided the other. Jesus would have been naked upon the cross. His mother would have seen him naked. John would have seen him naked. The women who ministered to him would have seen him naked upon the cross. Everybody who walked by would have seen the shame of his nakedness. And if you remember from the book of Genesis, that nakedness, awareness of nakedness, the shame of nakedness is associated with sin. That prior to the sin of Adam and Eve, they were naked and they knew it not. It wasn't until they had eaten from the fruit that they were aware that they were naked. That there was something about our nakedness that that shows that our sins are exposed. That is why we long to have our nakedness covered by the righteousness of Christ. That here the one who covers us was himself uncovered. In bearing our sin, he became naked that he might clothe us. And he had to endure the shame of the cross as it says in the book of Hebrews. And he says in verse 19, But O God, O Lord, be not far off from me. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. So here we come to his requests. Here we come to his, his prayer, his petition that, that God would draw near to him. That God would save him that God would hasten to his assistance. Indeed, that God would deliver his soul from death. And so we're brought back to the question that was raised in the introduction. In the introduction. How are we to understand this in light of Jesus saying in John twelve twenty seven, 27, my, my soul has become troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. How are we to understand Christ's cry for deliverance upon the cross? And my God, I can tell you, I wrestled long and hard to understand this. I read a lot of commentaries. I listened to a lot of sermons. I read a lot of, of, of uh, journal articles. And I think the best way to understand this is to understand that Jesus, as our high priest, is interceding for us. He's not asking for himself to be delivered from the cross. He is committed to the cross. He is committed to drink the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God to its very dregs. But he, as our great high priest, is interceding for us. And he has so identified himself with his people. He has so identified himself with our sin that he is crying out and interceding that we would be delivered from death. That just as he could say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? That he can so identify himself with the church. That the persecution of the church is a persecution to him. That now is the head of the church, the, the head of the body. That he has identified himself with us and he is crying out as our high priest that his work would be effectual. That it would deliver us from death. That there would be an ultimate deliverance from death. And that leads us also to the next question of how did God answer the prayer because he says in verse 21, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answered me. If you have uh, uh, various versions, maybe I think it's the, the New King James or the King James or uh, the ESV, it actually puts it in the past tense, which is what the Hebrew does. From the horns of the wild oxen, you have answered me. Remember the forms, uh, the, the parts of the lament, that in the lament there is some sort of confident assertion that God would hear them. And here Jesus is still in the midst of his suffering, And he says, you have answered me. You have heard me. In some sense, God heard his prayer. How did God answer his prayer? How did God hear his prayer? Well, there's there's two aspects to his prayer, aren't there? The one is that God would draw near, that God would not be far off. And the other is that God would deliver his soul from the sword. If we were to take both of these, take the first one, that God would not be far off. If you remember what i said about the timing of of the cross that jesus was crucified at nine in the morning come noon the darkness descended upon the land and then at 3 p.m it is at 3 p.m that the darkness was lifted but it was at 3 p.m that jesus cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me it was at that very moment that he cried out but you know he didn't die at that very moment if you look at this if you look at the seven sayings of the cross this is the fourth saying of the cross my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still has to say, I thirst. He still has to drink from from the wine, the sour wine. He still has to say, it is finished. And he still has to say, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So it seems that there was a short period of time from from the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the time where he expired, the time where he gave up the ghost, the time when he, he died that the sun returned. And if, there, if, if we are to understand the darkness as the judgment of God, then we would understand the return of the Son as the return of God's favor. That God has, 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 has looked upon His Son once again. That the, that the work of propitiation is finished. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Even if it wasn't the Son, there had to have been some sort of token given to Christ that it was enough. Because remember, Jesus didn't die just from his body giving out. He said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. He is the one who gave up the spirit. He is the one who decided when to die. And he wouldn't have died prematurely. So he must have somehow known that the wrath of God was abated. He must have somehow known that his work of propitiation was complete. He must have somehow known that God was satisfied. That it was enough that he could die. Otherwise, he would not have said, it is finished, right? He had to have known that it was indeed finished. But Jesus didn't only do the work of propitiation on the cross. That is, that's a big word. It means to remove the wrath of God. But he also gave the work of expiation, meaning he needed to pay the punishment for our sins. And the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. And as the bearer of our, of our sins, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he needed to die. And so he died. And he, and he received a deliverance far greater than what he would have received if God had brought him down from the cross because he received the deliverance of the resurrection from the dead. That the resurrection is a far greater answer to the prayer. That God answered his prayer in raising Jesus from the dead. And that he has answered the prayer of intercession. And that the Spirit unites us to Christ through faith. The Spirit unites us to Christ in baptism. So that Christ's resurrection becomes our resurrection. That, he, that, that we live because he lives. Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And in Romans, it says, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. Revelation chapter 1, Jesus, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Behold, I was dead. I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has risen again from the dead. He has conquered death. God answered his prayer for deliverance from, de- from death. God answered his prayer that he would return his favor to him. And we see that in this last section of the psalm, verses 22 through 31, that that God answered Jesus' prayer. So the psalm starts with Jesus struggling with unanswered prayer. It, It goes into a portion of Jesus repeating his prayer. And now we see God has answered his prayer in 22 to 31. He says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. Why? Why should we praise God? Verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the, the, uh, the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, God has heard my prayer. God has listened. God has returned his favor to me. He is no longer hiding his face from me. He has not despised nor abhorred my affliction. And I hope you understand that your entire salvation is wrapped up in this. That God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. It's not just that he did not despise it, that he did not abhor it, but that he gave regard to it. That God was satisfied with what Jesus offered on the cross. And we ought to be satisfied too how many of us wrestle with our own sins and wish that there was just some way that we could appease God that there was just some way that we could we could make him happy with us we just wish there was some way we could make him pleased with us i can remember as a young christian hating myself and hating my sin and just wishing i could i could i could harm myself because of my sin and i can i can remember it was like yesterday i was laying on the bed and and it was this is as if God has spoken to me. I know we're not charismatic, so I'm not saying I heard a voice or anything. But but it was so clear to me that any punishment I could give to myself would be despised by God, that it would be absolutely abhorred by him, that it could not satisfy his wrath. There was only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus, that it is only his work. There is only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one sacrifice that God was pleased with. And that is why there is only one way. That is why Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is this sacrifice that pleased the Father. It is this sacrifice that removed his wrath. It is this sacrifice that paid the penalty and the punishment for sin. And and the Father did not despise it. He accepted it. He received it. He was appeased. And Jesus is saying, listen, church. Listen, my brethren. You ought to praise God for it. This is his vow. He is saying to God, if you deliver me from death, I will go to the church. I will go to my brethren. I will declare your name to them. In the midst of the assembly, the word is ecclesia, the kohal. I will go and I will declare your name in the church. This is fulfilled in the 40 days after his resurrection as he declared the deeds of God to, to his disciples. It's declared in the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost as as the gospel was sent forth to the nations. It is fulfilled in Jesus sending forth the apostles, in Jesus raising up teachers and preachers. It's being fulfilled this very moment as he is declaring to you the name of God in his word. Jesus is fulfilling his vow that God heard his prayer and that he would come to his brethren. That is you, you are his brethren. That he would come to those who fear the Lord. That is you, the church. That he would come to the descendants of Jacob. That he would come to the descendants of Israel. We know from Romans 9 and from Galatians 3 that that's the church. That it is the elect that are accounted as the seed. And he not only says that he will come and declare his name to the church, but he also tells that he will declare the name of God to the world. That the kingdom will expand we see this in, in verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. It echoes the language of Psalm, or of Psalm 2.8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That the gospel would go forth to the nations and that the church would endure to the end of the age when he says that posterity will serve him, it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. To a people who will be born. That he has performed it. That God has done it. This is what God has done. So do you see the psalm? Do you see the flow of it? Starts with Jesus wrestling in the depths of his, of his suffering with unanswered prayer. We see Jesus enduring in prayer. Asking for God to deliver. Not just him. But as, as, as a representative of his people. As the second Adam praying for the deliverance of the church, that his work would be effectual. And we see that God has answered his prayer. So how do we respond? How do we respond to a text like this? Well, we need to look no further than to verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor bored the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. How do we respond? We respond with praise. We respond by glorifying God. We respond by standing in awe of him. Have you obeyed this verse? I know for me, I typically, when I think of the intercession of Jesus, I think of of his prayer prior to the cross in John 17, and I think of his prayer after the cross as as he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. But I don't typically think of him interceding for me on the cross. Have you have you thought about that? Have you thought about this passage of Jesus crying out for your deliverance as he was suffering on the tree? That's why he came. He came to deliver his people from their sins. That's why he's called Jesus. He came to rescue his people from their sins. And he interceded for us. And he's saying, listen, church. God heard my prayer. He heard me. He answered my prayer. That I have delivered you from death. That God has been gracious to you. He has forgiven all your sins. And that now he looks upon you with favor. That if we are in Christ, if we have been united to him, that we have the peace of God, we have the favor of God, and we have the forgiveness of our sins, we have deliverance from death, we have eternal life, and we ought to praise God for it. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, what a passage, what a text, to come into the very thought, the very mind of Christ as he suffered on the tree, to see him interceding for us, to see him praying for our deliverance from death, to see him praying for your favor to return upon us and to know that you answered that prayer. Oh God, how gracious you are, how how kind you are, and how marvelous you are. We do stand in awe of you this day. Who could have designed such a thing that God would become man that you would send your son to die for our sins. That through his death, death would be conquered. That through his resurrection, life and immortality would be given to the nations. Oh Father, how marvelous you are. We do praise you this day. We glorify you. We stand in awe of you. You are great. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to close out this time singing take a guess Psalm 22 we are going to sing this psalm back to God we are going to praise him for answering Jesus' prayer so if you would in your bulletin I don't know what I have here this is, this is someone else's bulletin It's probably why Scott got tripped up earlier it's a trap I got it my God, my God what is this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Pay attention to the words. We just went through this psalm together. Pay attention to Jesus' prayer and pay attention as you sing and praise God.